0: This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. On the 14th and 15th of April 2016, the Caldor Centre was proud to co-sponsor a symposium at All Souls College, Oxford, to celebrate the scholarship of Professor Guy Goodwin-Gill. The symposium brought together leading international refugee law scholars and practitioners. The following podcast is a presentation by Jean-Francois Durieux entitled The Duty to Rescue Refugees. What a magnificent occasion this is. I'm really thrilled to be here, I have to say. To be here on stage, to be on the the first panel of the day on such a special day uh, is a tremendous honor. I'm tempted to call it a privilege. But that would not be the appropriate word since, by definition, a privilege needs no justification. Whereas, in this case, there is a justification. (coughs) There is a reason why I am here today. What earns me this place of honor is the size of my debt. Of my debt to Guy, of course. No one in this room, believe me, or outside it, owes more to Guy Goodwin-Gill than I do. This is a fact. So don't ask me to produce the evidence which is comfortable. <laughs> we don't have the time for that. This is the simple truth. Accept it. Keep calm and move on. <laughs> I wish I could repay this huge debt by engaging critically with every aspect of Guy's huge, wide-ranging literature on refugees. Alas, the reality is quite different. I look back at the last 12-15 years, the few pieces I wrote, mostly co-wrote with some of my friends here, and what do I realize? For all that time I've been working on the same page of the refugee in international law. (laughs) Literally. And this paper is no exception. I keep returning to the same old page. It is actually page 343 in the current edition. It was, I think, 200 or 201 in the second edition. In fairness, it's actually more than a page. It is a few pages. It is actually a section in chapter 6 under a heading that reads Non refoulement through time. Question mark. Ah, that is interesting because it's actually the only section in the book that has a question mark in its heading. And I guess I, interpret this, I interpreted this as an invitation. And I got hooked. Fifteen years later, the question mark is still in the text, and it's still spinning in my head. In case you haven't read page 343 recently, let me remind you <laughs> <laughs> No Refoulement Through Time Represents in Guy's work and in his words the political and legal reality of mass influx of refugees, whereby, while the peremptory norm of non refoulement secures admission onto territory, admission does not raise the presumption that a local durable solution will be forthcoming. At the level of a particular refugee hosting state, non refoulement through time is a rather disheartening proposition almost a recipe for frozen refugee lives and an excuse for a substandard treatment of refugees. In a piece that Jane and I wrote many years ago, under that title, Non Refoulement Through Time, we proposed to overcome this static paradigm by means of a strictly regulated and monitored derogation regime to the 1951 Convention. Clearly, much more work still needs to be done on that front, but this is not, however, the focus of my talk today. Rather, the question that I would like to address is whether non-refoulement through time and or temporary refuge, which Guy posits as the practical consequence of non-refoulement through time, whether that is the glue that the international regime of refugee protection needs in order to function collectively. In Guy's words... Temporary refuge provides the theoretical nexus between the admission of refugees and the attainment of a durable solution. It is the critical normative first step in the effective protection through time of the forcibly displaced. Refuge is thus a link in a chain. My question is, is it possible and desirable to represent the chain itself not as a succession of interlocking obligations, but as one collective duty. This is the duty to rescue question. Unless I completely misread the famous page 343, and that would be a disaster, of course, the non refoulement through time model of collective action works more or less as follows. Because of its peremptory character non-refoulement, probably here in its modality of non-rejection on the frontier and admission, has the power to trigger a collective response of solidarity. And Guy writes, in admitting large number of refugees on its territory and scrupulously abiding by the non-refoulement rule, the state of first admission is acting on behalf of the international community. Now, this is really the key notion and I think it has to be well understood. We're not talking of an obligation that would be similar to obligatio obligatio in solidum. It's not talking about an obligation that can be exhausted by the performance of any one of the duty bearers. No, we're talking about a positive action carried out out of a sense of obligation that triggers a collective or at least a shared duty. This is a fair proposition. Nonetheless, a number of difficulties remain if the emphasis is put on non-refoulement as the primary duty of the famous state of first admission. The territorial dimension of non-refoulement slash admission gives prominence inevitably to immigration concerns, to matters of membership and identity. Within this debate, states that enjoy the luxury of sitting relatively far away from refugee crisis would like to make us believe that geographic proximity breeds affinity, and this is the dubious ethical underpinning of protection in the region policies. Also, Non-refoulement through time can all too easily be interpreted as a sequence of obligations. This is what some have called the protection before burden-sharing tradition, a tradition that suffers from the almost unfillable gap that exists between the peremptory character of non-refoulement and the largely discretionary nature of burden-sharing. For all these reasons, this tradition and the prevailing system of obligations is perceived as terribly unfair by a considerable section of participants in the regime, and I need not dwell on the deleterious impact of this real as well as perceived imbalance on the regime as a whole. In effect, there are so many tensions and fractures that it's becoming difficult to visualize the international concern and the collective sense of obligation that define a legal regime. In his most recent writings, Guy suggests that it might be wise, indeed, to delink the concept of refuge and non-refoulement and to conceive of refuge as the overarching principle of protection. At the same time, he has consistently stressed that the normative underpinning of the international community's concern for refugees is, and I quote, this much older body of principles encompassing the specific needs of those in distress by reason of force majeure. So, why don't we take this body of principles as the legal glue in the regime? The basic obligation, the contours of which we need to sketch, is in my view not to admit refugees on a particular territory much less to refrain from sending refugees back to danger, it is to rescue them from peril. This is the general obligation, and I would venture to add it is the collective obligation of all participants in the regime. This approach to international protection, let me be very clear, is no substitute for the more traditional paradigm that analyzes refugee dilemmas in terms of impartialist versus partialist accounts of membership, what I have called the inclusion affinity paradigm. Some refugees can still be seen as moral comrades, as champions of a cause. However, whether we like it or not, the dominant paradigm in these days and age presents refugees not as champions, but as victims. As victims of disaster, as people in distress. This is the dominant image of a refugee, also for purely statistical reasons. With very few exceptions, every new refugee situation is born as an emergency. That is, I'm quoting from the UNHCR handbook on the matter, a situation in which the life or well-being of people will be threatened unless immediate action is taken. Emergency, disaster and rescue are closely related concepts which have come to dominate the policy discourse on humanitarian action and on so-called humanitarian crises which in turn are routinely characterized as involving large-scale displacement of population. Now, I'm aware of the dangers of dissolving the singular identity of refugees as a special category of people of concern into an undifferentiated mass of disaster victims. That is not my intention. On the other hand, I think it is possible and indeed advantageous to frame this specificity in the language of disaster and rescue. And let me mention some of the advantages I see in this new paradigm. First, in the disaster and rescue language, new concepts emerge that can usefully challenge the traditional refugee-slash-migration law concepts. The international border, for example. The international border, in disaster language, comes to represent, hopefully, the critical line between danger and safety, rather than the place where sovereignty is meet and migration control is exercised. The concept of evacuation, which is very central to disaster relief work, is also significant. Where refugees do not find safety in the first country they reach, evacuation is what they need. Within this context, I would suggest resettlement is a misnomer, obfuscating the relevant fact that both distress and rescue may extend in time and space. Beyond admission into an equally misnamed country of first asylum. Beyond elements of language and concepts, we find that the imperative of saving lives from imminent threats has translated in practice into a sophisticated and highly effective disaster prevention and response architecture that was, I grant that, designed mainly for natural disasters. The keywords here are preparedness, predictability of response, coordination of efforts, near-immediate collective response, all of which are in short supply in most refugee emergencies. Three, by representing mass refugee influxes as complex emergencies, the International community recognizes that such influxes are disasters not only for the refugees slash victims, but also for their hosts. To come to the rescue of refugees is also to express solidarity with the helpers. Rescue in this sense is admission and burden sharing in the same breath, so to speak. It overcomes two of the major flaws of the original non More through time paradigm that I have identified the protection before burden-sharing tradition, and the assumption that proximity equates with affinity. Four, and I'm not sure whether this is a strength or weakness, but complex emergency is also the bridge between in-country protection and refugee protection. It may well be that the refugee in need of rescue is the refugee that Chaknov defined in this uh, uh, old piece on who is a refugee, i.e. the one who has access to the international community or to whom the international community has access, regardless of where or in which territory he can be accessed. And finally, rescue has the power to guide us because there is a rather well-developed legal framework of reference, which is the regime of rescue at sea. Of course, that regime is of direct application to refugees who are both people. But beyond that, and more generally, I think that the regime of rescue at sea provides an interesting reference, sometimes at the level of a metaphor, but also sometimes much more concretely. And I would like to point to some of the features of that legal regime that I believe are relevant to our discussion of a, rescue, a duty to rescue refugees more broadly. First of all, in that legal regime of rescue at sea, coordination trumps contingency. There is an element of contingency, of course, in rescue at sea, in the sense that your duty is actually contingent upon your location on the map at a particular moment. However, this element is not absolute. The ship that received the distress call, or the ship closest to the scene at that time, may not be the one eventually sent to the rescue. Furthermore, a rescue operation may actually be carried out by several actors based on comparative advantage. The duty is incumbent upon all, But it is exercised in coordinated fashion. The role of the RCCs, the rescue coordination centres, being fundamental. Besides, coordination does not stop at the point of rescue. The amendments to SOLAS and SAR also require now that the contracting states coordinate and cooperate to ensure that masters of ships providing assistance by embarking persons in distress. Are released from their obligation with minimum further deviation from the ship's intended voyage. If frontline states in a refugee emergency are metaphorically rescuing ships, their own interests must be taken care of by the international community at large. There's also an interesting and important dimension of rescue through time. Attention to the consequences of rescue is gradually integrated into the legal regime of rescue at sea, building upon the rock-solid obligation to save lives. The notion of delivery to a place of safety is an interesting link in this continuum and one that is especially relevant to a broader duty to rescue refugees. As we know, under the law of the sea as amended, and the applicable guidelines, a place of safety is a location where rescue operations are considered to terminate, where the survivor's safety is no longer threatened, basic human needs can be met, and transportation arrangements can be made for the survivor's next or final destination. There are important cues to be imported from this definition into the universe of refugee emergencies. It suggests, for example that rejection at the border is not the only risk which international law seeks to keep at bay. Beyond safe crossing of a border, the duty to rescue refugees will not be fulfilled satisfactorily until and unless safety, in a broader sense, is available to the refugees. Since the Sufi and Elmi decision, we know for sure that the refugee camp is not necessarily a place of safety. It may be a way station comparable to the deck of a rescuing ship, but not a place where the rescue can be considered to be terminated. The survivors must also have access to what refugee law would call a durable solution, and this is part of the same duty to rescue. Of course, I'm not suggesting to simply transplant the regime of a rescue at sea to Uh, the broader field of rescuing refugees. So where do we go from here? My time is almost up. In my paper, which is coming up soon, Jane, I promise, um, I'll be exploring uh, ways to frame the collective duty to rescue refugees within existing legal frameworks that I'll have to find necessarily outside the refugee law box. So I'll be looking at international disaster relief law at IHL, not least based on your work, Ruby, on on Article 1 and 3. With some trepidation, I'll be looking at R2P as well. I'll be looking also at ways to institutionalize this duty. And this notwithstanding the warning that Anna Arendt gave us a long time ago, that compassion is incapable of establishing lasting institutions. So, can I meet this challenge? Certainly not on my own. I need more than a little help from my friends. (laughs) To be precise, I need more help from my mentor. Uh, So, dear guy, this is to you. By the magic of an innocent question mark, you prompted me to undertake this adventurous journey. If I lose my bearings, I hope you'll come to my rescue.